Welcome once again to Searching the Scriptures radio broadcast. We do appreciate you tuning in again today and trust that you're getting some help from these Bible lessons we conduct here on the Searching the Scriptures radio program. I'm Pastor Travis Alltop, and it's always a privilege to have an open Bible before me and another opportunity to expound the Scriptures for a little while today. As always, we're going to go right to the Bible and give you something out of the Word of God. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today, and we're going to be looking again at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, you say, well, preacher, you've You've taught out of this passage before. Yeah, and I'll be doing it again in the future, I'm quite certain. You say, why would you continue to go over truths about the second coming? Well, because it's the blessed hope of the Christian. And number two, it's supposed to be a comfort to the Christian. Could you use a little bit of comfort right about now? I mean, the passage starts off that we're going to read, I'd not have you to be ignorant. Well, I'm telling you, we're living in one of the most ignorant day and ages I've ever been around. We may have advanced in our technological advancements and in our medicine. But when it comes to common sense, we have digressed back to the, I don't know what's going on, but we've got industrial strength, ignorance ruling the day. And uh, every once in a while, that kind of overwhelms the heart. You think these are the people that are making decisions for us that seem to have no clue of how to handle things, what to do next. And so it's comforting to know that there's still a rock on which to stand. There are still promises to stand upon. There is still hope. And uh, that's a great thing. The second coming gives us hope and it gives us comfort. And let me remind you, carnally minded ones out there, that you never mind re-watching your favorite show. I've been told that some folks are sitting around uh, with uh, for days watching, binge-watching old shows. And then I know there's a, there's a station known as ESPN Classics where you can sit around, waste a couple hours of your life watching the Cotton Bowl from 1983. So if people can sit around and watch old reruns of sporting events that are 30 years outdated, that's already been played, this, the game, we already know what the score was. We already know what happened. But if you can sit around and watch that or sit around eating popcorn and watching uh, four or five years' worth of Little House on the Prairie in a week, then certainly you can bear with the preacher as he uncovers the glorious truths of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Somebody says, well, they've been saying he was going to come since I was a little kid. Well, amen. What's your point? Just because people talk about, well, they've been saying that forever. Like that when you say that to counteract or to bring a counter argument against the second coming of Jesus Christ, they act like they've got some kind of a point they're going to make. Think about what they're saying. It hasn't happened yet. So therefore it's not going to happen. Why the Bible says we know we're getting close to his coming when people start saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. But the Bible says, beloved, be not ignorant because God doesn't keep time like you and I keep time. And so let's go in here into first Thessalonians four today and let's get some comfort and some basic things from the second coming, the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's begin in verse 13. Let's read it together. This is the inspired word of God I'm reading from. And these are words that are supposed to be used to comfort one another with. The Bible says, But I would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. That tells me right there there's people in this world with no hope. But not for those who have believed. Because notice in verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
In other words, this is written to someone who's believed the gospel. Did you catch that in verse 14? If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, why, that's the gospel message. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what I trusted to get me out of hell and to get me out of my sins and to take away my guilt. I trusted what Jesus Christ did for me. You see, when the Bible speaks of believing, it's not talking about having a historical knowledge of Jesus Christ. Recently, I know of a man, a very religious man, but he had never professed to being born again, and he would never profess that Jesus Christ was his Savior and his only hope. Now, he was very religious, and he went to a church that uh, talked about Jesus Christ. And as he got uh, closer to his death, he worried about if he was ready to go. And someone used to ask him the question, well, you believe in Jesus, don't you? But you see, that's the wrong question to ask. Because lost people, yes, they believe in Jesus. And the Bible, doesn't the Bible say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Preacher, I'm confused. What are you saying? I'm saying this. You better find out what it means. What is the definition of believe in the Bible? When the Bible says here in verse 14 concerning the second coming, it says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then the promise is given. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. You say, what's it mean to believe? Well, it's defined in Ephesians chapter 1. It means to trust. I have trusted for myself personally as a guilty sinner. I have looked to Calvary's empty cross and empty tomb. The Savior is no longer on the cross. He bled and died and became sin for me in time 2,000 years ago. They buried him, and three days later, he rose from the dead. When I saw myself before God and I realized how God viewed me, when I compared myself against the uh, infallible standard and measurement of the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and I saw how far short I fell as a sinner, and I believe, began to believe what the Bible had to say about me because it told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about Travis Alltop, I pled guilty, and I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and received him as my Savior. I have believed upon Jesus Christ. I've trusted him. You see, a lot of people believe in Jesus Christ like I would believe in George Washington. I, we all know he was a historical character. We believe that he lived and he died, and we know that he was real. I don't care how many statues they knocked down of him. George Washington was our first commander and also our first president. And I believe in him, but I don't trust him for anything. And the truth of the matter is I couldn't because he died. And he did not get back up physically from the dead. But God is calling us to believe upon the one who died for us in our place, but then rose from the dead three days later. Have you believed on Jesus Christ as defined in the word of God? Paul said it this way, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Jesus Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So the Bible says to believe on Jesus Christ is to trust Jesus Christ, not just to know about him in your mind, not just to agree with historical facts about a man who lived and died and rose again, but rather to understand who that man was and what he did when he died 
and what it means because he got back up from the dead. Have you believed on Jesus Christ? Then I'm preaching to you today because these words, this promise of the return of Jesus Christ is the great hope, it's the great comfort of all true believers. Look at it. Pitted against those who have no hope in verse 13, it then says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, those are the folks that have hope. It says, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And so we have the number one, the reality of Jesus Christ's return for true believers. Truly born again Christians are the ones Jesus Christ is returning for. This is a reality. And you say, why do you say it's a reality? Well, because we're learning how to live in a make-believe system. They began many years ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago, by sterilizing our speech and forcing us through a thing known as political correctness, trying to force us to talk a certain way and to pretend to make-believe with words. And now they're beginning, they're trying to take away our nation's true history um, in order to make believe that America is not what she is, in order to make believe and rewrite and make up history as we go. Uh, people often have, now they're saying they're confused about their gender. No, you're not. You're just being contrary to what you know is true. And so people now have fake words with fake vocabularies. People have fake genders. People have fake offenses that they're offended by. People have fake histories that they're learning. And people have fake realities. They call it virtual reality. I'm tired of all the fake stuff. I mean, I'm not interested in fake. I want something that's real. I want something that's a reality. Well, my friend, there's no greater reality in this Bible that is put forth than the second coming of Jesus Christ. We find it in typology in Genesis 5 as Enoch is caught away and and was taken by God and was translated according to Hebrews chapter 11 and was found not. That's a picture of this very New Testament doctrine that we're reading about. The Song of Solomon pictures the king coming down uh, to call for his bride. He says, rise up, my fair one, my love, and come away. We see it all through, mentioned all through the Gospels where Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. We see the angels reminding the 11 apostles in Acts chapter 1, this same Jesus you've seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner. We see it all through Paul's writings about waiting for his son from heaven and looking for that blessed hope. And then we find John as a picture of it in in Revelation chapter 4, as John was on the island of Patmos, the disciple whom Jesus loved, just like Christ set a special love upon the church and gave himself for it. It says there that John, a picture of the church, is caught up in, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he is caught up off the island of Patmos, and he finds himself in the throne room in heaven. And you say, what is that? That's a great picture of the return of Jesus Christ. Hey, it's a reality. If this Bible teaches anything, it teaches that Jesus Christ is coming again 
And even so, come Lord Jesus. I'll say also about the second coming, it's not only a reality, but it'll be a great relief to Christians. Can I tell you something? Uh, If you've been paying any attention to how quickly your whole world can change in a matter of hours or days, how whole traditions, how whole ways of life can be snuffed out, how whole societies can be uprooted and turned in a different direction in a matter of days, and listen, turned in a bad direction. Uh, amen. It's like there's corruption, there's carnality, there's all kinds of things going on that the Christian wants to be delivered from. And there's no greater deliverance he desires than the deliverance from his own struggle with sin as a Christian. In Romans chapter 7, after Paul talks about it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me, he goes on to say at the close of Romans 7, he says, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He was grieved over the fact that there was two principles working in him. There was two things that were pulling at him. He wanted to walk for the Lord and with the Lord, but his flesh wanted its own way. And have you not found out many times that you're your greatest enemy in the Christian life? A lot of times it do us good just to look in the mirror and point a finger right at our face and say, you are my biggest problem. You are why I don't have more success in the Christian life than I do. You're why I don't have a glorify God in the way that he would like to glorify himself through me. I mean, there's all kinds of things that go on that we want to be free from. And I realize that we're here for a, a purpose and that God's got something for all of us saved people to do. But I'm telling you, it will be a great relief to be delivered from this old vile body till our bodies will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. It'll be a great relief when he comes down from heaven to rescue us and to catch us away and to catch us up. So shall we ever be with the Lord. You say, what's the point? The point is this world is fading. As you get older, young people, listen, as you get older, the things that sparkle and glimmer and shine in this world, it'll lose its luster. It'll begin to lose things. All that stuff that you think would make you happy, a fancy job, a beautiful wife, a good-looking husband, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, adoration from people, whatever it is, fame, fortune, uh, relationships, uh, whatever it is, all of that stuff has a way of losing its luster as life goes on. One thing is certain, and that is change, and change is usually in the wrong direction. And you know what? It'll be a great relief to born-again Christians to be able to say bye-bye to this old sin-cursed sewer of a world that we're living in. And uh, you know, I think right here, I think of a man that knows what that feeling of relief is. A couple of years ago, I read a great book by a World War II veteran by the name of Edgar Harrell. The book was called Out of the Depths. And he was a USS Indianapolis survivor. And if you know your history at all, uh, the USS Indianapolis was torpedoed a little after midnight on July 30th, 1945, after having dropped off the elements and the parts that they needed to put the atomic bomb together. And the ship, I believe, was on its way to Guam, if I remember right. But when the ship was hit, 300 of the 1,200 soldiers died in the explosion, But there was about 900 men that went into the water. And five days later, only 317 were rescued. And during those five days, it was just a hell on earth for those men. They were in groups of, some of them were in groups of 70 and 80. They were drifting many miles apart. Some of them were stragglers. 
and uh, out there with these life jackets that were getting uh, waterlogged. And if that wasn't bad enough, by Monday afternoon, the sharks had shown up and began to feast on those men that were in the water. It's a horrific uh, story. But O. Edgar Harrell talks about that fifth day. And he knew if the sun set on that fifth day that he'd never make it into a sixth. But he said there was a plane that was flying overhead. And it just ha- so happened that plane was about 3,000 feet off the ocean. And it was an American plane looking for Japanese submarines. And as they looked down, it was just an amazing deal. And I don't have time to get into the details of it. But suffice it to say, in the providence of God, that pilot of that plane saw those men in the water. And they could see the sharks circling. And they had been for days. And Edgar Harrell describes in an interview and in that book how that when he saw that left wing of that plane dip, and turn around, he said the relief in his heart that they had been spotted and that they would be saved was overwhelming. And while I could not understand, nor could I ever imagine in my own heart what that would have been like to have been rescued after you were almost certain that you would be left to die a miserable death floating around out in the ocean, 12 million square miles of South Pacific Ocean, the idea and the thought of a plane spotting you tipping its wing and turning back and circling overhead, dropping things out and radioing for help. Listen, he said it was a relief. And then a PBY was called in, which was about an hour away. That PBY came in and landed on the ocean and um, tore one of its motors off. They were advised not to land. They did so anyway. And that PBY began to float on the water and, and go around and pick up stragglers and individual men out of the water's And Edgar Harrell was one of those men that was picked up on that PBY. He said, we picked up 57 men that day. And uh, I had got to meet him and I went out to eat with him. And he looked at me and he said, now someday somebody's going to tell you that you can't fit 57 men in a PBY. He said, but you tell them that you can if you strap 11 men to the wings. And my friend, he talked about the joy that busted his heart wide open to see planes coming down and to see, uh, realize that he had been spotted and that someone was coming down to rescue him. Do you get the picture? Hey, you don't have to worry about being found. You don't have to worry about being spotted. Jesus Christ is coming down to our great relief. And what will that be like? Amen. When he comes down and reaches down and lifts us out of the angry waves, out of the shark infested waters of this world, what will it be like When the Lord comes and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, catches us away. What a relief. And let me say thirdly, moving forward here, the second coming is not only a reality, it's not only a relief to the Christian, but listen, it's going to be a great day of reward. Now listen, Christians need to know this. We are going before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Our life is going to be reviewed. And while that's a sobering and a scary thought for many of us, nevertheless, I can promise you that the Bible says this. The Bible says in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus speaking, he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Jesus Christ is going to reward those who have lived for him and served him. And I've got news for you. Every Christian will receive something. So how do you know that? 
Because I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 about how Paul says, I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified? He says, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. And he goes on to say, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. That's the second coming. And he says that there's going to be a judgment here. It's implied. It's, it's stated very clearly that the Lord is going to judge. And we don't have to worry about judging anything before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Now listen, here's the promise. And then shall every man, every saved man, every man have praise of God. Can I tell you something? I'm looking forward to hearing God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You say, preacher, you're boasting. No, listen. No true child of God should not want to please his heavenly father. And the good news that I just read to you is the fact that Jesus is coming and his reward is with him to give to every man. And the passage we just read, while there are some things that I hate the thought of how God's going to deal with my lazy days and my selfish decisions as a Christian and my sinful choices at times in my Christian life and the loss that I may suffer in that day. But listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says that then shall every man have praise of God. That means that the sorriest Christian listening today will have something that God will have used you to do that he will be able to brag on you and to praise you for. And I'm going to tell you something. Have you ever thought what it would feel like to have the God of the universe to brag on you or to give you a compliment? Listen, I've had men compliment me, and I knew they were lying. I still enjoyed it. It's called flattery. But I'm going to tell you something. God does not flatter men. God only speaks the truth, and he'll tell the truth about you. And he says, my reward is with me to give to every man according as his works shall be. So how you live is how you're going to be rewarded. But the good news is, if you're truly saved, God will have something to reward you with. He will at least have praise for you. Then shall every man have praise of God. Can I tell you something? There was nothing I coveted more in my youth than my dad's approval. If I threw a touchdown pass, I was thrilled that I got to throw that touchdown pass, but I was looking more forward to discussing it, reviewing it, and talking about it with dad. There's nothing like looking up and seeing your dad giving you the thumbs up or the attaboy. I remember the first time I ever got to play at the Grand Old Opry, and uh, my dad uh, listened up in Ohio on 650 and recorded that first appearance there when I got to fill in with Ricky Skaggs and Kentucky Thunder and all that mess. And I remember I was so thrilled, so thrilled that, uh, that the Lord allowed my dad and I to experience that together. That meant more to me than actually getting to do it. Just the fact that I knew he was listening and I knew my dad was proud. Well, if we'll do that for our earthly fathers, how much better will it be when our heavenly father says, you did good right there. You say, what is that? That's the reward. That's the, the praise that we're going to hear at the judgment seat of Christ when Jesus returns again. Hey, I'm talking about his second coming. This ought to comfort our hearts. It's a reality. He's coming. It's a relief. It's going to be a great relief. It's going to be a day of great reward. And it's going to be a day of great reunion. Look back in our text. It says... 
If this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. That's called a reunion at the second coming. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now I'll tell you what the biggest deal is. We're going to get to be with Jesus Christ. But God didn't hesitate to let us know that we were going to be with them who'd gone on before us. Now you think back over your life. You think back to your saved grandma or your saved mama and daddy. Or maybe a, a sister uh, that loved the Lord and went to heaven. Maybe a husband, a wife. I don't know who your loved ones are, <laughs> your friends, your family that have gone on before. But the Bible says when Christians die, we put their sleeping body in the ground. But their soul, which is eternal, immediately departs at death. And if they're saved, they go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, when Jesus comes again, he's bringing them with him. And we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Hey, you know how wonderful a reunion can be? I heard R.G. Lee tell the story that when he was a little boy, or I read the story, actually I didn't hear him, but he told the story in a message that he was sitting on his front porch down south and his mother was sitting there and he says, Mom, what was the happiest day of your life? And she said, Son, you've asked a very hard question. But she thought for a moment and she says, I believe it was the day, she said, uh, that I'd like to tell you about. She said, it was during the war between the states. And she said, uh, my dad had gone off to the war. Bennett was his name. And she said, I took over the responsibilities, your mom and I, or your grandma and I. She goes, took over the responsibilities of the farm. And she goes, it was hard work up at the morning before uh, dawn, into bed after dusk. And she said, those were hard, lean days with the anxiety of waiting to hear bad news from the battlefields. And she said, one day we got a note, a letter in the mail saying that my daddy had died in battle. And she said, I watched my mom. And she said, mom kept working hard and never showed any emotion. But she said at night through the wall, I could hear her crying. And she said her heart was broken. And she says the war dragged on and we were poor and we were making ends meet the best we could. And she goes, we were stringing beans. Mom had a bowl of beans and she was stringing and uh, snapping and stringing those beans. And she said, she looked up the road and she said, you know, she said, that man coming yonder, she goes, walks a lot like your dad did. And she said, I just kept helping mom with stringing those beans. And she said, you know, if I didn't know better, I think that was your dad. She said, now, mom, don't get yourself all worked up out here today. She said, you know, dad died a year ago in a battle. And she said, about that time, she threw that green, that bowl of green beans in the air. And she says, that is your daddy. And she said, she busted off that porch and took off in a dead run toward that man. And she said, I was soon behind her running. And she said, sure enough, it was my daddy Bennett. Back in those days, uh, many times false information was passed and they couldn't be sure about battlefields and the dead. And so they'd gotten word that Bennett had died. 
But actually, the only thing wrong with Bennett was his sleeve was pinned up. He had had his arm amputated. He had been wounded, but he wasn't dead. And she said, my mom wept tears of joy to see him, who she had thought was dead, but she had been reunited with. And she said, that was the happiest day of my life. And can I tell you something, friend? There'll be no happier day for the Christian than when we're reunited with our saved loved ones. And my friend, it's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. These are rooted in the reality and the facts of the Word of God. There's coming a great reunion day. And I look forward to seeing my loved ones and all these men and women I've read about here in this Bible that have been with the Lord for thousands and thousands of years now. I look forward to the day that I can be caught up to meet them together in the, in the clouds and to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm telling you, the second coming is a comforting and a blessed hope for every Christian person. Don't quit looking up. Look up for our redemption draweth nigh.